The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. In the first, I interview Michael Hagney, a localizer for early seasons of the Pokemon anime. We talk about his career in entertainment, what the process of adapting an anime is like, and a few of his other experiences. Don't forget to check out his podcast, Original Pokemon. The second segment is an archival interview with Kyle Haber. Originally recorded at Anime in Milwaukee 2014, I asked him about his recent role as Professor Oak in the Pokemon Origins miniseries. Kyle was more than happy to explain how he approached voicing the character, and we hope you'll find it as interesting as we did. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Michael Hagney, who was part of the localization team for the first couple seasons of Pokemon. And Michael, we just have some questions to go through. First of all, where are you from? And how'd you get into the entertainment industry? Well, it's nice to talk to you, Stephen. Uh, I am from Brooklyn, New York, and that's where I'm talking to you from now. I lived in Manhattan for a while, but I'm back in Brooklyn for many years. Uh, How did I get into the entertainment industry? I was on my school newspaper, and uh, a girl that was in my office on the paper worked in the student placement center. And uh, I said, Liz... If you get any jobs that pay a lot of money, very little work, and lots of glamour and excitement, let me know. I got two out of three. I got a page job at the CBS Broadcast Center in New York on 57th Street while I was going to Fordham University. From there, I met producers and a lot of friends who eventually went on to work in the entertainment uh, field. And that's where I've gotten basically all of my jobs. I only went on one job interview in my life, really, and that was the page job. And from there on, it was working with people that I had worked with or known, really, from CBS. And then, uh, what were some of your first shows or other projects that you worked on there? Well, originally, you know, at CBS, I was an usher on shows, but then I worked in different offices. I worked in the office of a producer and director who was very big in game shows. His name was Mike Gargiulo. He just sadly died this year. And he had been a director on Password and a bunch of of game shows over the years, $25,000 Pyramid and, and a whole bunch of them. And he was at that time producing and directing live events for CBS, New Year's Eve shows and uh, parades, Thanksgiving parade, Cotton Bowl, Rose Bowl parade. And I worked with him on those live events for several years. From there, I went to doing some promos for movie packages and from there to a syndication company where we did specials like uh, Har Hall of Fame, which were two-hour award specials that we did for three years. I did a series of, uh, with alternative music called Music Scoop, which was hosted by Kelly Ripa. And oh, we did pilots for soap shows and all, all different things. I had a skating competition show. And from there, I went to doing uh, anime adaptations. Yeah, you worked on a show called Slayers, which actually a fair number of Pokemon people had uh, were on at one point or another. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, the reason that I, I started working actually in localization or I call it adaptation of, of series was that we did a sports competition show called Blade Warriors. At that time, inline skating was a big deal. And this was like, if you remember American Gladiators, this was like American Gladiators on skates. And film the, we uh, taped these, these competitions in this big hangar out in Santa Monica and then brought them back to New York and had the hosts do the commentary. So we didn't do it live. We did it after the fact. So I was essentially writing their ad libs, writing their commentary. And a brother of a guy I had worked with said, hey, I usually put new music on old cartoons and they leave the voices. But this company wants me to put voices on cartoons but not the music and you do that right and i said yeah and that was slayers and then that was followed by a series called i think here is greenwood which was a really nice series too and you're right a number of people who worked on uh, both here is greenwood and on slayers eventually we cast in in the pokemon series so how did you personally get involved with the series obviously you knew some folks there uh, but what was the uh, specific people involved well, uh, as I said, I worked at a, an ad agency, and then the ad agency that was hired by a syndication company called Select Media hired me and the Mark Juris who worked with me. So uh, we, they did a show called In Sport, which was like a kind of a cross between Entertainment Tonight and a sports show. And that was directed by Norman Grossfeld. And so I worked with Norman Grossfeld, who then eventually uh, became the president of Four Kids. And... Then when four kids got the, the license for Pokemon and had the job of localizing the show for America and English-speaking territories, he needed somebody to do that. And he knew I had done that on Slayers. And so he called me and he said, you know, we're, we're doing this series about kids and they have these battling creatures. And at that time, it sort of clicked with me. And I said, is this the show that's been in the news that sent all those kids in Japan to the hospital because that was a big news event back then. And he said, yeah, but we're not going to show that episode. And that's that Porygon episode that a lot of fans always ask me about. And so that's how I started doing it. And then I did a bunch of other series too, but Pokemon of course was the, was the big, uh, the big hit. So what was the actual like technical process there uh, in those early days? What did you actually uh, do from a, like a, a video standpoint? Well, we would get a, a v, I would get a time-coded VHS of each episode, and I would also get a script from the translator that the four kids had hired. His name was Paul Taylor, and they would give me a script with all the a dialogue as a kind of direct translation from the Japanese. I don't like to say literal because every all translations are sort of a, an interpretation, but anyway, a direct translation of the Japanese script. And then I would have an in and out for each line of dialogue with a time code number. And then at that time, because I didn't, it was nothing was digital then, or as, as far as the video wasn't digital, I had a VHS machine and uh, a remote control that would go forward and backward. And so I would go line by line, writing the script and trying to read what I would had written so that they would match the flaps, uh, the you know the mouth movements of the characters, and then we we worked at that time for the first season. We worked at a sound studio called Buttons Sound in uh, Midtown Manhattan. Then we would 
bring each actor in. They would do all their lines in that episode and sometimes more than one episode. And then we'd bring the next actor in, next actor in, and we would go, okay, the first, the first one is on page four. It's, a, you know, whatever the time code was, we'd do that line. And then we'd just go through the episodes and build them up like that with the, with the individual actors. Uh, you also did a few character voices. Uh, which ones were those, and, and what was that kind of like? Well, you know, I, I've just recently started a podcast called Original Pokemon, and it's about my memories of doing the series. Uh, I haven't really watched the episodes for 25 years, or nearly 25 years. So uh, I go back episode by episode, and each one I'm kind of discovering the the characters that I did. All in all, going down the list of the characters that I remember, I've done between around 30 or 35, maybe 40, possibly a few more than that, mostly Pokemon characters. But I also did, a lot of the fans remember Blaine, the uh, gym trainer from one of the episodes in in, uh, early season. And I would do occasionally, you know, an incidental character here or there. But uh, mostly the characters that, that stand out are Charmander, Psyduck, Snorlax, you know, primate, but a lot, a lot more than that. Cubone, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, that, that Snorlax one in particular, you've gotten a lot of mileage out of. I believe that voice sample is still used in the modern Super Smash Brothers games when uh, Snorlax comes out of the Pokeball there. So even some of the younger uh, listeners at home should uh, recognize that one. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've just been, go- I, last year, I've been going to conventions and signing autographs, and I've just got back from one. I met hundreds and hundreds of people, and, uh, you know, they all ask about uh, Charmander and Psyduck, but boy, Snorlax is so popular, and it's one of the voices that, because we used to, I used to do it, and then we would pitch it down a couple of semitones to make it kind of much more resonant, but it's like a... Yeah, but kind of much a little deeper and longer than that. So it's a little disappointing, especially in noisy convention centers. When I do that, I kind of have to make a megaphone with my hands to get a little bit of the effect. But yeah, a lot of the uh, the voices that I did for the series are also used in some of the games. Uh, I wasn't until recently uh, aware that they're they're still being you know used in in very very recent games. Yeah, that, that's just really neat how something you did that long ago is still uh, making waves. <laughs> yeah. So what was it kind of like being part of that, speaking of waves, that first wave of the franchise and, and when it actually started coming out and started really getting traction in the West? What was that kind of like for you? Yeah, you know, that people ask me that at the conventions, too. You know, at, at the very beginning, I thought, wow, this I don't think this series is going to last because it was very different from what was on broadcast television you know kids animated series that were on broadcast television they had a lot of emotion there were some you know kind of down moments and the the uh, lead uh, of the series was not always winning and you know it was it was just kind of different it looked different but pretty quickly because it had the cards and it had the games you know it was if, if anybody who was around at that time, I mean, it was on the covers of, you know, Newsweek or Time, I think Time and Newsweek. I'm not sure I have. I know it was on TV Guide. They did four different TV Guide uh, covers with uh, Pikachu and I think Psyduck and Charmander. And I forget the other one. So I was on two covers of of, <laughs> of TV Guide. It's sort of my the characters I voiced anyway. But it was a huge thing. And of course, kids were going crazy for the cards. 
And we were certainly aware of that. But the thing was, it was a very busy job. And I was at the beginning, I was not only adapting the series, but I was directing the actors. And I was also, you know, using, you know, voicing a lot of the characters as well. So, you know, really the first times that I I was very aware of it was riding on the subway and seeing the kids say, hey, I got a Charmander and, you know, and that kind of thing. And the really big experience was when the first movie came out. Uh, we, I went to um, California for one of the premieres at, I think it was Grauman's Chinese Theater then, but it could have been Man's Chinese, you know, with the cement prints of all these stars there. It was completely packed. It's a huge theater. And when that Pokeball popped out at the beginning, you know, in the opening credit, it just the crowd went crazy. And I remember two other things, a couple of rows ahead of us was David Hasselhoff and one of his children, I presume. And it was the first time I saw, after about 10 minutes of the movie, an usher come hustling down the aisle and pull somebody out. And it was somebody had a camcorder and they were trying to pirate the movie before it was even open. But by that time, we knew that it was this huge, phenomenal hit and uh, was just really, really, you know, a big success. But... Uh, we didn't really have a lot of contact with the fans. You know, the fan mail would go mostly to, um, to Nintendo or for, to the stations. Mm. You know, since then, in fact, if you have just one more second, I had somebody come up to me at the convention this, this week and said, you know, I had written you a letter and we talked on the phone 25 years ago and it was a big moment for them and it was really nice memory. So it, it was one of those shows that really had so much and still does, has a lot of resonance for kids who grew up with it, who are now adults and have children of their own. Yeah, yeah, the cycle, we're starting to see it uh, come full circle in the last few years, so that's that's been really neat. Yeah. Now, you had said that in, in the early days you were, you were on, like, VHS tapes and stuff like that. Uh, during your time working on the series, did things get more advanced as we sort of turned into the new millennium? Uh, how, how did that uh, progress? Yeah, I think we were using DATs. Remember the DAT tapes that were originally, uh, I believe we were recording on DAT. Or they were using Pro Tools, I think, at Buttons. And then after the first season, uh, the company that I was in partnership, I was in partnership with Larry Juris uh, for Taj Productions. And so we built this studio in our office because at that time, you know, when I started in TV, you know, when you mix shows, you had to go to someplace in the Brill Building or someplace uh, in in California where we'd mix. You know, where they uh, there were a lot of places, but they had these gigantic mixing boards, and it was very expensive. And but by that time, the miniaturization of everything that we could have a a setup in our office to record in a booth that we had built. So it it even changed from like the first season to the second season, technology wise. And so that's what I remember about that. All right. Well, you did work on a couple other four kids shows uh, in that era. What were they? And then what was that like? Well, after, you know, uh, as I said, Larry and I had this company. And so uh, I had an opportunity to work for four kids and they still were using uh, Taj to do Pokemon. But once the show was established, they were now branching out and, and adapting and broadcasting more shows. So I started after Pokemon. I went to uh, Kirby it was called Kirby right back at you. I did a few seasons of that. Then after that, uh, I worked on Sonic X, you know, sticking with the video game kind of thing. I uh, did a couple seasons of that for a very short time. I very few episodes, but it did air, I believe, another um, video game called F-Zero. Mm-hmm. After that, we did uh, the four kids 
you know, wanted to do some, an original thing. So they partnered with a, a creator in uh, Scandinavia and we did an original series for three seasons called Chaotic. Uh, and that had a card game and, a, and a, a video game element as well. And then my last, and a couple of little other things that I did, but the last one was a, a Korean show called Tai Chi Chases, which I understand just came out on um, DVD uh, from Amazon. But but that was the last original. And then after that, I, I worked as a freelancer adapting for Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, ArcV, and Zexel. And since then, I've been uh, working on the podcast and also now started going to fan conventions. And uh, that's really been, you know, that's really where I get the fan feedback. You know, after all these years, it's incredible. They've been so super nice about their memories, particularly about Pokemon, but sometimes the other shows, too. Yeah, you had mentioned your podcast in here. So you have a podcast called The Original Pokeman, and it's where you sort of go over episode by episode. Uh, you're about to release, as we're recording this, uh, The Waterflowers of Cerulean City. I believe episode seven is going to come out, hopefully, by the time folks are hearing this. Yeah, and you go through, you sort of explain some of the decisions you made, you defend some of them, maybe mea culpa a little bit on some of them. Oh, definitely, definitely. I hope I'm not too defensive. That's what I've been thinking about recently, because I understand all the criticisms that they had. And I, I did understand them at the time. You know, we had a lot of people who are really into, you know, original, the original anime and are deeply offended and angered by a lot of the changes that I made on Pokemon, but on other series too, but mostly Pokemon. And I always did understand that, you know, I felt my job was to Americanize the show and I did that to varying degrees of success. I hope it was mostly successful, but yeah, no, in the early days, a lot of the letters that I would get <laughs> seemed to be the negative ones. So <laughs> I'm used to that and I understand it. And, and, and I explain, and I hope I'm not too defensive in the, um, in the podcast, but I do try to explain the decisions and why I made them and why people hate them. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a, a bit of a mixed bag. You mentioned in some of the episodes that, yeah, there's like, you know, standards and practices, stuff that would not fly on uh, on American television or maybe even in some other countries. But uh, what sort of prompted you to start that podcast? Uh, to be honest, I had nothing better to do. <laughs> That's one reason. The other reason was that when I became aware that some of the people connected with Pokemon we're doing, you know, appearances and stuff. And there was just one I hadn't really heard. I, I mean, I was aware of them, but I didn't, I didn't watch them. But I, I watched a few before doing the podcast and I actually before deciding to do the podcast. And there were a couple of things that people said that I remembered much differently than they did. And so I'm not saying I'm setting the record straight with my podcast, Original Pokemon, but I'm saying that these are my memories and uh, I just thought I'd get my two cents in there, too, because, you know, I had kind of a different, I won't say unique, but a un I guess it was unique in that I was an actor. I wasn't really in management, but I directed the shows, but I was also, so it wasn't really from the actor's perspective. It wasn't really from the corporate perspective. It was somewhere sort of in another place. So I thought it was just a little bit different and might be interesting to some people who are still interested in the show. Why don't you pick out one tidbit from one of your episodes that you think will uh, get people interested in your show? Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't presume that everyone would be interested, but uh, <laughs> I guess in an upcoming episode, famous, I didn't really know it was that famous, but um, 
there are two things. There's an, a line that I have that, that people apparently it's like a meme, which I didn't know this until about six months ago, that where the kids are running in the rain and they're trying to get out and kids and Pikachu are running and uh, Brock has a frying pan and he says, I'm going to use this frying pan as a drying pan. And people seem to like that line for some reason. But of course, the notorious one is the decision to change the uh, rice balls, the onigiri, to, from rice balls to jelly donuts. <laughs> and so that's something, the, the backstory of that is something that I hope that the lovers and the haters can um, enjoy when I get to it. But there is a little bit of a backstory there, and I hope that that might be interesting. All right, definitely something to look forward to. So uh, where can folks find you online? Do you have a website uh, or, or what, uh, what else? Well, I, I have, as I said, it's, my podcast is called Original Poke Man, and you can get it where, you know, Spotify, Google, iTunes, any, any place where people ignore podcasts. And uh, my email address is originalpokeman at gmail.com. And once I figure out how to get my own uh, webpage for the, for the podcast, uh, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the episodes out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been great having you on. It's been nice talking to you, Stephen. And uh, all I'll say is, All right, folks, thanks. Making My Way Any Way That I Can has a longer history than you might be aware of. It doesn't go super far back, but the earliest version I found is by Winona Judd on the soundtrack to the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg business comedy The Associate. The song would then show up on a Marsha Hines album in 1999, which was soon followed by the Billy Piper version you're probably familiar with. Each of these features a different arrangement, but the more electronic instrumentation in Piper's rendition is probably what made it the choice for the Pokemon soundtrack. As for the lyrical content of the song, the theme of strength overcoming adversity results in an experience that I think would have fit in very well on To Be A Master. What's most interesting, however, is the way phrases that were originally intended as metaphors become literal when applied to Pokemon. The source material is a game in which you cross rivers and climb mountains. If you really want to stretch it, there's also reference to strength. Not bad for a song that was probably written before the games were even out in Japan. In any event, feel free to check out those other versions, there's at least one more that I didn't mention, and let us know what you think. Thanks. All right. Hi, uh, my name is Steven. I'm from uh, PokePress. Um, so you recently worked on Pokemon Origins, which was a, a special mini-series that went over sort of the original game plot. Um, you played Professor Oak, mm-hmm. who has been played by uh, actually a couple other people in the regular Pokemon TV show, as far as English goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your kind of uh, approach to the character? Uh, were you intentionally trying to make it sound different than what's on the regular TV show, or, or what was the, uh, the approach there? The actual, uh, what, what, what happened was, like, typically a voice actor nowadays gets an email audition with the script. We just record it from home and send it on. So when I was told about the project, uh, they were looking for voice matches. And uh, they sent YouTube links. You know, it's like, pick some, some guys you want to read for. And uh, here are the links. So just try and get in the ballpark of this character. So Professor Oak, he's older, so I tried to give an older sort of sound. I forgot how it sounded, but... Uh, I got hired based on that. Uh, I get to the session, 
and they say, okay, so you're gonna be Professor Oak, and let's take a look at what he looks like, and then suddenly, oh, he's younger. It's like, well, I can't give that old man voice to this guy who looks like he's in his maybe 40s or so. So we went with something that's pretty much just my own speaking voice. And um, it's like, okay, that's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll take this in a, in, a, in a different direction. That's pretty sweet. And you know, from a personal standpoint, it's another obviously huge franchise that uh, getting to play in that playground, you know, from an acting standpoint, is just like, oh man, this is, this is so cool. I'm just geeking out that I get to be a part of all this. And uh, actually, another anime Milwaukee guest, uh, Bryce Papenbrook, is actually red in origin. Now, did you ever record while he was there, or uh, were you, was it completely separate? Typically, when you're dubbing anime, and in video games, the actors record individually. That's for a technical reason, especially if it's a Japanese product, because you have lip sync to deal with for anime dubs. And in video game, when you, when you uh, localize you know, bring, do an, an English adaptation, you have to match the timing of the Japanese audio uh, because it's being animated to the Japanese audio. So we may not have all the elements in a game situation. We may just have the script. And it's like, you're voicing a 20-year-old, you know, whatever. May or may not get to see a screenshot or an artist rendering or anything. Sometimes that just happens. But yeah, would love to say, it's like, I get to record with the whole cast and all that. That only happens when you do like a domestic cartoon situation. You have the cast record. That, by far, in my opinion, is the most fun. You get to play off each other's performance. You're kind of like doing a radio play. Every actor has their own microphone, their own stand, and you're sitting there doing it scene by scene. And yeah, you stop and do it again a couple of times. And, but typically in an anime situation, we're, we're probably done in you know, two-hour chunks. No more than three or four, though. And if you have more than that in terms of, of line count, and reaction sounds, then they're going to split it up over a couple of sessions. Were, were you ever in the studio around the same time? Did you ever actually see each other? Yeah, in, in the sense that, you know, one session's ending and then the other person's begins. So you see them as, you know, one in the hallway or in the studio as the other person's wrapping up. And then you finish your session, the other actor may, may show up and you may pass each other in the halls or whatnot. And then, you know, we see each other then and we see each other on the convention scene. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Uh, and I, I had done it for several things, actually. Actually, there was a movie called Golf Force, which is the first thing I did. But anyway, then we did Slayers and Greenwood and things. If not, hopefully I shortly hope so. thereafter. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but you go episode yeah, by very, episode. I'm a, very, I'm a very strong procrastinator, but I'm weakening. So as episode seven should be coming soon. And uh, only a couple of hundred more to go. But yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that's the one that uh, I've been stuck on for a while.